0: Good morning everyone, good morning. If you'd get a Bible out and open it up to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke the 14th chapter. Gonna read some verses here in Luke chapter 14 that will set the stage and kind of undergird all the things that we want to talk about this morning from the Word of God. That is what this portion of our worship is devoted to, the reading and the study and the consideration of God's Word and how the truths of God's Word intersect with our daily lives and how we ought to live in service unto Him. It's great to see everybody this morning. It is a beautiful Lord's Day and just uh, just a wonderful occasion, a privilege for us to be together uh, as God's people and even as people that are just seeking after the things of God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. In Luke the 14th chapter, we read of an occasion where Jesus is invited into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to get to, to get to have dinner, to eat bread with him on the Sabbath day. And there is a crowd gathered inside this house, most of whom were probably Jesus' greatest enemies. The very people who would crucify Jesus just a little while after this. The various leaders amongst the various Jewish sects. And they're talking with these people for a little while... And even creating a little bit of tension, a little bit of drama in the room. If you were to read the first, the first, uh, I don't know, ten or twelve verses there, you'll find that Jesus says some stuff that probably would have offended some of the guys in the room. Finally, in verse 15, a guy speaks up and says, "Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God." And I read that in verse 15, and it kind of always seems like this is guys just kind of trying to break the ice. There's all this tension that's built up in the room, and so this guy just blurts something out. Blessed is everybody who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And that's a good thing to say. Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus wants to capitalize on what that guy says to say, well, not everybody is going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus does next is he tells a story to talk about who it actually is that will be in the kingdom of God. And that is the parable of Luke, the 14th chapter, beginning in verse 16. It is the parable of the great banquet. Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Even another said, I've married a wife and therefore I can't come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, Sir... What you commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited of the first group, none of those who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Jesus says here that not everybody is going to be in the kingdom of God. Who is it that's going to be in the kingdom of God? It is those who accept the gracious invitation of the Master. And I believe, especially as you read this, the direct application of that parable was for those guys right there in that room, the Jews who were living in the first century, many of whom would reject Jesus. They would reject His message. They would reject His invitation. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that if you guys are not going to accept it, I'll extend this invitation to some people who will, and that, of course, would be the Gentile nations. I must tell you what really catches my eye, though, about this parable is there in verse number 18. How they all, one after another after another, after being extended this gracious offer, this gracious invitation, one after another began to make excuse. Hey, I bought this new piece of land and I need to go I need to go kind of work on it. I bought a bunch of new cattle and I need to go break in my cattle. I've got a wife and she just won't let me come. I just can't come today. And as a result, the master of the house becomes angry and says, None of you guys are going to get to be a part of my banquet, of my feast, of my supper. Now, while there certainly was some direct application for the people living in the first century at that table on that day, I want you to understand that there is application and relevance even for us today. Because just like back then, there are people today who are shunning and who are making excuses not to accept the gracious invitation of the Master. Even though it is 2017, there is still an invitation, isn't there? It is the invitation that Jesus well summarized in Matthew the 11th chapter, verses 28, 29, and 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That invitation is not just for a select few. That invitation is for all mankind, every person of every flavor, of every stripe, and of every kind. Yet men and women, and young men and young women, will offer what seems like just a myriad of different excuses to avoid or to keep from coming to Jesus and accepting that offer. And the excuses that people often give, they range sometimes from the very thoughtful, it's something they've thought out and they've really given this some thought and this is their reason why they haven't accepted it, all the way down to the absurd. In fact, it sometimes amazes me the lengths to which some people will go to try and talk their way out of accepting Christ's offer. And that's why this morning I am asking the question, what is your excuse? What excuse might you be using? What excuse might you be clutching with every fiber of your being right down to this present moment to avoid becoming a Christian? If you are of the age of accountability, and by that I just mean you understand what I'm talking about this morning, if you have heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and you have yet to act upon it and accept this offer then it has to be something. You understand that? There has to be something there. There must be some excuse that you are leaning upon and that you are holding to that's preventing you from accepting the invitation of Jesus. This morning, I want us to look at just a few of what I believe are the more common excuses for people to not obey the gospel. And really, a sermon like this, I think it's going to serve at least two purposes. Number one, for those of us who are Christians, this morning I will provide for you and for me what I believe are some scriptural responses to the various excuses that we hear people make for not accepting the invitation of Jesus. As we try to talk with and persuade our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends and even our family members to overcome those excuses and to obey Jesus Christ. But then secondly, and in many ways more importantly, For anyone in attendance this morning who is not a child of God, what I hope is I hope that one by one you will see the folly of these excuses that we will talk about. But I hope you will come to the realization that any excuse that you might offer to God, God does not accept it. God does not honor excuses. What God honors is our heartfelt obedience unto Him. And this morning, I hope that by the time I'm done talking, I will have convinced you, the Bible will have convinced you to stop making excuses and to start obeying Jesus. You ready for that? What is your excuse for not becoming a Christian? Maybe we ought to start right at the top where I think a lot of people are. First and foremost, one of the most common excuses that people give is, well, I don't need to become a Christian because I'm a good person. I'm already a, a good Person, You know, I'm a moral person, got a certain conduct that I live by. You know, my mama and my daddy, they raise me right. I don't go out and break the law. I try to help out people that are in need, my fellow man. I just don't need all that Christianity stuff, don't need all that religious stuff. I can be good without God. I mean, I'm a good person without all of that stuff. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself that you are a good person, let me just say... Good. I'm glad you're a good person. The world needs more good people. That's absolutely wonderful. But can I ask you this? If you're good, you're good according to to what standard? Certainly there has to be some measuring stick here, some standard of excellence to determine whether or not a person is good. Are you saying you're good by the standard of, I don't know, like public opinion? You know, if you just ask a bunch of people, is he a good person? Oh, yeah, he's a good person. Maybe, is that your standard? Maybe your standard is the standard of human comparison, where you go and you find somebody else and say, oh, you know, compared to that guy over there, I'm I'm a really good person. That's that's kind of silly and kind of foolish, isn't it? We can all find somebody who we're much better than. You know, Point it like, you know, Adolf Hitler. I, I'm a better person than that guy. I'm a really good person. And while we're thinking about all of this, just... Who exactly determines the definition of good? You might think that being a good person means you sign up for a marathon. You're going to run 26 miles in order to raise money to find a cure for cancer. For you, that might mean that that's that's what it means to be good. For me, being a good person may just mean staying at home with my wife and my child and just hanging out with them and just being together as a family. That might be my definition of good. Who exactly is right here? You see, it's really not within you or within me to determine the definition of good. And so for for us to determine what good is, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to go back to the origins of good. And that, of course, would be the creator of good, the creator of all things good. That would be God. It is God who sets the standard. And the truth of the matter is, if we honestly judge ourselves by God's standard of good and bad and you know, kind of a scale of morality, what we would all find is that we all come up woefully short. We are far short of being good. Paul said in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 10, as he quoted from the Old Testament, he said, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Not a one of us measures up completely and fully to God's standard of good. And why is that? Well, if you continue on in Romans chapter 3, Paul says down in verse 23, it's because we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And as a result, that kind of knocks us out of the running of getting the award for being the goodest. None of us are truly good. There's only been one man who has ever walked the face of this earth who was without sin and who could truly say that he was good. And that guy, he is sitting right now at the right hand of the throne of God. His name is Jesus. You see, it's not a matter of our good stuff outweighing all of our bad stuff. And I think that's a common misconception in people's mind. Five zillion good things over here on the good scale still doesn't begin to outweigh just one sin over here on the bad side. If you have sinned, then my friend, you are a sinner. And you are then in need of forgiveness of those sins. You need a Savior from your sins, no matter how good you think you are otherwise. Well, I think one of the best illustrations of that would be in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, the example of a man by the name of Cornelius. In Acts 10, in the first two verses, we're introduced to this fellow. Cornelius is a devout man, a God-fearing man, a generous man, a prayerful man. We look at that guy and we say, that's a good man. That is a good man right there. But in Acts 11 and in verse 14, Cornelius was still told that he needed to send for the apostle Peter who would come to him and who would tell him the things he needed to do in order to be saved. Saved from his sins. What I want you to understand this morning is that even good people need to be saved from their sins. And I'd like to think, as I look out over this room, I think by my definition of good, I'm looking at a group of good people. But you know what? Good people still need saving. Becoming a Christian is not about being good. Becoming a Christian is about the fact that I am a sinner. And that I need salvation from my sins. Claiming to be a good person. That's just not a good excuse for rejecting the invitation of Jesus. In fact, if you were to read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, 22, and 23, you'll find that on the day of judgment, Jesus says there's going to be a lot of folks who claim to be good. And they're going to tell the Lord about all the good things that they did. And on that day, they will be rejected by the Lord for all of eternity. It's not about being good. It's about being forgiven of your sins and serving Jesus. Let's maybe just flip this excuse over on its ear. What about kind of on the flip side of that? Some people use it as an excuse, not that I'm a good person, but some people use the excuse of, well, I'm just I'm just too bad. You know, I, I've just done so many bad things in my life. You, you, don't even, you don't even want to know the kind of bad things that I've done, the kind of things people just don't even speak about. God wouldn't save me. God doesn't have any use for me. God in His church couldn't use someone like me who's lived the kind of wicked life that I've lived. I'm just, just too bad to be a Christian. And you know what? You may be right that you have done some some pretty bad things in your life. Maybe you've done the kinds of things that have brought shame upon you and upon your family. Maybe you've done the kinds of things that have sullied your reputation. It's depleted your bank account. Maybe even ruined your physical health. Maybe you have done things that you regret every single day of your life. But can I ask you this? Are you as bad as Saul of Tarsus? I was thinking about this last week. Sam preached to us a lot about Paul and about his former life. You you know about Saul of Tarsus. We know him better as the Apostle Paul. But in his former life, he was a guy who persecuted Christians, delivered them into prison, bound hand and foot, delivered them over to be executed, killed for their faith. This is the guy who tried to stamp out and destroy Christianity before it ever really got going. That guy, Saul of Tarsus, that is the guy who later on in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 would admit that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor against Christianity. That very same Saul of Tarsus in verse 15 of that chapter, he would call himself the chiefest of sinners, Let me ask you, are you as bad as that guy? Are you as bad as that guy? I mean, that guy, that's the Osama bin Laden of the first century, a terrorist in every sense of the word. you as bad as that guy? I doubt it. But you know what? Let's just say for the sake of argument, let's say that you are. Let's say you were as bad as Saul. What does Saul say in that very same text in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Paul says that despite my wickedness, Verse 16, I obtained mercy. He says in verse 14 that the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant toward me. It overflowed for me. Paul's point is that if God could save a filthy, no good, rotten sinner like himself, God can save anyone. There is no sin that is too great that cannot be forgiven when you have a penitent heart. I think for proof of that, you just look no further than those very people who crucified Jesus. You would think, if there ever was such a thing as an unpardonable sin, you'd think that murdering the spotless Son of God, you'd think that would be it, right? But were Christ's crucifiers, were they too bad for salvation? In Acts chapter 2 and verses 36 through 38, Peter had an occasion to preach To those very people, to a room full of murderers with blood on their hands. In verse 36, he convicted them. He said, this Jesus, this one who is both Lord and Christ, you crucified him. You people did this. You are guilty. You are the one. And after being pricked in their heart, and after being convicted of their sin, and they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them in Acts 2 and verse 38, Sorry about your luck. Nothing I can do for you guys. You guys are just stuck. You can't be forgiven of what you've done. Is that what your Bible says? Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus, for the remission of your sins. Now I tell you, friends, I don't care who you are and I don't care what you have done. If you are willing to repent and then surrender your life in humble, heartfelt obedience to the King, God will forgive. no doesn't matter how bad that you've been. And when you stop and think about it, the truth is, the gospel is for bad people. It sounds kind of crude, but it is absolutely so. Since none of us are truly good, we've already established that, then the saving message of the gospel must be for bad people. Remember what Jesus said to Zacchaeus in Luke the 19th chapter in verse 10? After Jesus had spent the afternoon with this guy who was a chief tax collector. If you lived in first century times and you were a Jew, man, tax collectors and the chief tax collector, that was, in your mind, that was as bad as it gets. They had reputations for being liars and cheaters and swindlers and thieves. And yet Jesus said to that man in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man is come, To seek and to save the lost. Jesus came. Jesus died in order to save people from sin. That was His primary mission for coming to this earth. To die for the sins of all humanity. And yeah, that includes even yours. Bad as you think you are, Jesus came for you. You're not too bad. If you have a willing heart, have an open mind, then even the baddest of the bad can be changed for the better. Don't allow this excuse to be what you're clinging on to to reject the gracious invitation of the Lord. Having said that, though, there's yet another excuse that I hear quite often. I think this is a big one for a lot of folks. There are a lot of folks who don't become Christians and obey Jesus because they say, it just seems too hard. Being a Christian, living the Christian life, that just seems just seems like that would be too hard for me. It looks like a, a way of life, and it is a way of life, but it looks like a way of life that I just don't think I'd be strong enough to, to pursue and to, you know, to, to to really do that and to, to really be committed. And my immediate reaction when folks say that is to say what my parents and my grandparents used to say to me whenever they would put food in front of me that I had never eaten before. And I said, I'm not eating that. That looks gross. That's nasty. And they would say, how do you know until you've tried? I want to say that to people who are not Christians and they're looking at it and they're saying, oh, it looks too hard. Well, how do you know until you've tried? There are some people, though, that I am convinced have really given that some careful thought, some careful consideration. These are the people who, they'll say, I I have studied the Bible. I've listened to the sermons, went to Bible class. I've really thought this through. I've taken a look at all the, the commands and the expectations that are laid out in the Scriptures. And I just... I just don't think I can do it. I know me, and I just don't think I can do that. It just seems like it'd be more than I could bear, more than I could do. I just, I, if I'm gonna do it, I wanna be able to do it right. And I'll tell you, I think there's something about that attitude that is commendable. I think there's something respectful there. The idea of actually counting the cost, thinking this thing through ahead of time, that is critically important. And in fact, Jesus said, you better do that. In Luke the 14th chapter, there in verses 26 down through verse 33, Jesus explains the level of commitment that is called for, that is expected of a person who wants to be a disciple of His. Jesus says, you need to be willing to forsake everything. Forsake all that you have. You need to be willing to love me, put me ahead, even of your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and your children and anybody else. This is a huge commitment that you're making. And Jesus says, you need to think about that. You need to give consideration to what you are committing your life to. Because make no mistake about it, living faithfully as a Christian, it is difficult. You maybe didn't think I was going to say that, but that is absolutely true. The Lord has never promised that the road from here to heaven would just be a just be a cakewalk. In fact, the Lord tells us just the opposite of that. In Matthew chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, Jesus said that the the gate, the straight gate, the way that leads unto life, that it is, it is narrow. He says, few there be that find it. The road that leads to heaven, it is restrictive. It is challenging. And yes, at times, it's just difficult. But I want to say this. It is not too difficult. That it can be done. In fact, there are promises in the Word of God that tell me so, that let me know that it can absolutely be done. For example, when it comes to temptations, I I remember when I was a young person before I obeyed the Gospel. That was a big deal for me. The thought of of trying to be a Christian for years, decades even. How am I going to resist all the sin in the world? I know I'd be tempted. The devil doesn't just give up just because you were baptized. I knew that the devil keeps working on us. And I used to think about that. How am I going to continue to resist temptation and serve God and do what was right? If you believe what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, you can do it. What's 1 Corinthians 10 13 say? I tell young people they need to memorize and commit this verse to memory. There has no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but He will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape, an exit plan, so that you are able to endure it. Paul says there are no temptations that are too difficult to bear for those who are seeking after the things of God. And then what about all those commandments in Scripture? Somebody says, well, it's not just about the things I'm not supposed to do. What about all that stuff in the Bible that I'm supposed to do? All the stuff you have to do as a Christian. That just seems like just seems like it more, more than I'd be able to do seems like they would be so hard to obey the commands of God. Not if you believe what 1 John 5 verse 3 says. John says there, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. God says God's commandments, they're not too much. They're not too difficult. For those who are striving and seeking to do what is right, will you make mistakes? Absolutely you will. Will you live perfectly? Absolutely, you will not. But please don't tell yourself that it is too hard to be a faithful Christian or that somehow you are not strong enough to do it. I'll tell you when the real strength comes. I'm going to say this to our young people. Real strength comes after you become a Christian. I thought about this last week when Sam was preaching about Paul. In Acts 9 and verse 22, the Bible says that Saul increased even the more in strength. When? While he was sitting in Damascus waiting for Ananias to show up and to you know tell him what he needed to do? No! After he obeyed the gospel, he continued to grow and to be strengthened. And I am convinced that there are a number of spiritual blessings, tools and resources that God has provided for those who are in Christ to help them to grow, to overcome the world. And I'll tell you, you only get access to that stuff once you're in Jesus Christ. Do not allow the grasshopper mindset to be your excuse for rejecting the invitation of the Lord. Maybe somebody else is sitting here thinking, Well, I'll tell you what my excuse is. Mine is I just don't know enough yet to be a Christian. I don't, I just don't know enough about, about the Bible. Don't know enough about you know what it takes to be a Christian. Don't know enough about just Christianity in general. I'm not as knowledgeable of the Bible and the Scriptures as I feel that I need to be. I haven't heard enough gospel teaching and so I, I'm, I'm just, just not ready yet. Now, I will tell you, there are circumstances where that absolutely is a valid excuse. There are circumstances where a person just truly does not know enough yet. For example, you have a young person who maybe see someone baptized or they have some concept of baptism and maybe they want to be baptized. But they don't understand the meaning of that and why you do that and who that's for and what that's all about. So they don't know enough yet. It's going to take a little bit of time. Maybe you have somebody that comes out of, of denominational teaching. And as a result, you've got a whole bunch of stuff that they need to kind of unlearn before they can then learn the actual truth of Scripture. In circumstances such as that, yeah person could say, don't know enough, need some more teaching. And I want to say along those lines that having a thirst for knowledge, that is absolutely commendable. I think a desire to learn and to know more, it's a great attitude to have. Jesus commends that in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, I believe that there are members even of the Lord's church who would do well to develop more of that kind of attitude. I want to keep learning and I want to keep growing. However, I want to say this. Having a complete knowledge of Genesis to Revelation, that is not a prerequisite for you to become a Christian. God does not expect us to be walking encyclopedias before we can become one of His children. Which begs the question that I know somebody's going to ask. They're going to ask, well, well, how much does a person need to know before they can obey the gospel, before they can accept that invitation? Well, I'm going to tell you. When I read the book of Acts, and I read of the conversions that took place in the book of Acts, it seems to me that those conversions took place very, very quickly. Most of those conversions took place after just one lesson. Just one Bible study. One sermon. My favorite example of that is in Acts the 16th chapter. The Philippian jailer. He had heard some things, obviously, about Jesus. Paul and Silas had been singing that night while they were in their prison cell. And so he asked in verse 30, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 32, the Bible tells us that Paul and Silas, they then spoke the word of the Lord to him. Did a little bit of that teaching. And so here they are. They're teaching this man some things about Jesus, teaching him about what he needs to do to respond to the gracious offer of Jesus, some things he needs to do in order to be saved and forgiven of his sins. And then in verse 33, the Bible says that the same hour of the night, not 16 weeks later, after doing 16 different Bible studies and doing all kinds of correspondence courses and watching film strips and doing all this stuff, the same hour of the night, He took them and washed their stripes, and he was baptized the same hour of the night. Just think of that. In the span of about an hour, and if you want to add the events that happened a little bit prior to that, just a few hours, that jailer went from being unsaved and being ignorant of the gospel to now being saved, a baptized believer in Jesus. So somebody asked, well, how much does a person need to know? Well, apparently not a whole lot or at least not as much as we think everybody needs to know. It is evident that Paul and Silas were able to teach this man the fundamentals of the gospel in very short order. And what are those fundamentals? Well, I believe Paul really sums it up best in 1 Corinthians 2, there in the first couple of verses. Paul says there, as he reflected upon his previous visit to the city of Corinth, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 1, Paul says, "...I, when I came to you, brothers..." I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, the only thing that I came teaching was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul did not feel the need to teach those people all of the intricate details of what the Bible says about marriage and divorce and remarriage. These people did not need an entire lesson on the expository sermon on the history of the Old Testament. These people did not need to know everything about everything. That's not what they needed in the beginning. They needed to just hear about Jesus. And what I want to say to you this morning, if you're hanging on this, I don't know enough stuff, and you're just not sure that you you do know enough or not, what you need to know to become a Christian, I believe, is really quite simple. You need to know, first of all, what sin is. You need to know that you are a sinner. And because of that, you need to understand that that has separated you from your God. You are not in fellowship with God. But the good news is is that God has sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross of Calvary, to atone, to be a sacrifice for your sin. That that very same Jesus, He arose on the third day, which is what declares Him to be the Son of God with power, as Romans 1 says. And if you believe that with all of your heart, you're convicted about that. And if you are willing to then confess that with your lips that I do believe that, I do believe Jesus is God's son, if you're willing to further act upon that by repenting and turning away from sin and turning to God, and then putting Jesus on in baptism to have your sins washed away, then my friend, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Those are the basic principles that you need to know, that I need to know, to get started on the road that leads to heaven. And as for all the rest, somebody says, what about all that other stuff? whole bunch of other stuff in the Bible other than just Christ and Him crucified, and yes, there is. But as for all that other stuff, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 and 14 tells us that the rest of that stuff, it'll come in time. It ought to come in time. It better come in time. All the other knowledge that is needed in order to remain faithful to the Lord, it will come with time, with diligence, with study, as you grow from being a babe in Christ to being mature in Christ. Being a Christian is a constant work in progress. If I went around this room and asked those of you that have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years, I tend to believe each one to a person would say, you never stop learning. You never stop growing. It's a work in progress from now until the day that I die. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in biblical studies. You don't have to have a doctorate in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic in order to become a Christian. Don't, don't let that be your excuse for shunning the invitation of the Lord. Fifthly, somebody says, "I'm not a Christian because I tell you there's just there's just too many hypocrites in the church." I'd sure like to be a Christian. That looks like a good thing. I'd like to. to you know, it seems like there's a lot of benefits to being a Christian, but. I tell you, there's just too many hypocrites. I've just known too many people who claim to be Christians and they're just hypocrites. I just see it all the time. Go outside and walking around and you meet people and people call themselves a Christian and they're out cussing and drinking and they're not acting like a Christian, not dressing like a Christian, not conducting themselves like a Christian is supposed to. And you know what? I just don't want to be around people like that. Well, i am just tell you, is being around hypocrites, if that is such a painful experience for you, then it might be wise for you to just never leave your house again. Because the truth of the matter is, there are hypocrites everywhere. In every walk of life. You will find people who are acting hypocritically. Have you ever had a coworker that talks bad about the boss behind his back? And then as soon as the boss comes around, he's like, oh, he's sucking up to the boss. And it's like, can you believe that guy? What a hypocrite. Saying one thing and then doing something different. Has that ever caused you to quit your job because there was hypocrites in the workplace? This is the type of excuse that I think a lot of people, they're kind of quick to throw out there, but they don't really think it through because they're not really consistent with it across the board. There are hypocrites in school. There are hypocrites in the PTA. There are hypocrites at the restaurant. There are hypocrites at the ball game. You go to a ball game. Guys cheering for the home team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the home team starts losing and not playing really well. Boo! You guys stink. Get your act together. What a hypocrite. That doesn't prevent people from going to ball games. Never hindered us from being involved in those various walks of life. And even as I say that there are hypocrites everywhere, I do need to admit that, yeah, there are hypocrites even in the Lord's body. We're not proud of that. I'm not glad to stand up here and have to say that. But the truth is, there are bad apples in every bunch, as the old saying goes. Jesus illustrated that point well, I think, in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew the 13th chapter. Jesus said that the devil has sown tares, or he's sown these weeds, even amongst the good seed, what will be the wheat. And unfortunately, that is true within the Lord's body. There's going to be some bad tares, even amongst the good seed. But as Jesus goes on to give the divinely given explanation down in verse 37 through 43, Jesus says that at the harvest, which is the end of time, at the end of the world, judgment day, those weeds, those tares, they're going to be exposed. All the hypocrites will be exposed for what they really are. And on that day, they will be cast into that eternal, fiery furnace. Hypocrites have their reward waiting for them. Now you tell me which is worse. I've heard preachers say this all my life, and it's kind of cliche, but I think it's so true. Which is worse? Spending a few years in church with a few hypocrites? Or spending an eternity in hell with all of the hypocrites? And I'll tell you, whenever I hear this excuse, I cannot help... I can't help but turn to the New Testament. And I'll tell you, there is someone who is very near and dear to me personally. But I will tell you right now, this is their hang-up. They're hung up at the fact that there are hypocrites who profess to be Christians. But when I open up the New Testament, and I look in there to see, all right, surely there's going to be some examples of people who refuse to obey the gospel because they saw and observed other Christians acting hypocritically. Surely there's going to be some examples of that in there. But I don't find that in the Scriptures. Did Jesus refuse to worship in the synagogues because of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees? No. Did those 11 remaining apostles, did they abandon following Jesus because of the hypocrisy of Judas Iscariot? No. Did hypocrisy stop people from obeying the gospel when Ananias and Sapphira were exposed as the hypocrites that they were? Actually, would you look in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira, their hypocrisy was laid bare for all to see. They pretended to be generous and sincere, when in truth they were liars and they were cheats and they were crooks. And as a result, God struck them dead on the spot for all to see. Now, did their hypocrisy cause people to say, "Uh Aha, told you, I knew it. I knew those hypocrites in the church and that just proves it right there. Don't want any part of that. Nope. If you're in Acts 5 and you drop down to verse 14, the Bible says that after that happened, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. Multitudes, more than ever. People did not allow just a couple of hypocrites to get between them and and God. They didn't allow a couple of hypocrites to become bigger to them than God. If this is the excuse that you're holding on to this morning, please do not allow the hypocritical actions of one or a few to determine your eternal destiny. And I'll just say right here, if there are people who profess to be Christians and their hypocrisy has turned you sour, I'm sorry for that. I'll say even personally, if you have observed me in my life, in some way, saying or acting in a way that is not becoming of a child of God, and that has caused you to be hesitant about becoming a Christian, I want your forgiveness for that. I want God's forgiveness. And then I want your forgiveness. I'm sorry for that. We all are going to experience moments where we lapse in judgment, we don't use, we just don't use our minds as we should, and we're not as committed as we ought to be. I'm asking for your forgiveness and I'm asking you to not put your soul in the hand of someone else. Finally then this morning, as we think about the excuses that people give for not accepting the invitation to the great supper that Jesus has prepared, this final one is probably the most common and it is probably the, in many ways one of the more difficult excuses that people offer. And that is, I don't accept the invitation of Jesus now because I'm going to do it Tomorrow. I do plan to become a Christian. I've thought about that. I can picture in my life that, yeah, one day I'll be a Christian. I've always thought that, yeah, I would be a member of the Lord's church. One of these days I'm going to get my life straightened out and I'm going to serve Jesus. Not today, no. Tomorrow, though, I will. I'm going to obey the gospel, for example, once I get done with high school. Get all the peer pressure of high school. Get all that out of the way. Then I'll be a Christian. Well, then I'm going to go to college. Well, well you know, once I graduate college, get all that. Get my education out of the way. Then. Then I'm going to be a Christian. Well, I'm, you know, I need to get my career established. That's what you go to all that school for. Let's get my career established, get my job going. Then, then I'll be a Christian. Well, I met this person. I really like them. I think we're going to get married. Let's give my family in order. I have kids. Establish a home. Then, then I'll be a Christian. Well, you know, there's so much responsibility with family and work and all that. I don't really have time to be a Christian. So when I retire, then, then I'm going to be a Christian. Well, I'll tell you, you talk to retired people and they'll tell you they have all kinds of time. They didn't realize that they had all this time to do all of this stuff that they got to do. They're traveling here and there and they're taking care of grandkids. Don't have time to be a Christian now, but later. When I'm really old, really gray, got nothing else going on in my life, then, then I'll be a Christian. You see, in the mind of the procrastinator, there just always seems to be another tomorrow. When Paul preached the gospel to Felix in Acts, the 24th chapter, Felix was confident that he would always have tomorrow. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. The Bible doesn't ever tell us that that convenient season came for Felix. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. We are always putting off today what we're sure that we can do tomorrow. Let me tell you the problem with tomorrow. First of all, you may die before tomorrow comes. I think that's the obvious one. In James chapter 4 and verses 13, 14, and 15, James talks about the folly of making too many plans for tomorrow because you might not make it there. James says, what is your life? Just a vapor. It's just a mist. It appears for a little time, just for a moment, and then vanishes away. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die. Death is certain. Tomorrow is uncertain. My youngest brother, Ben, told before, 16 and a half years old, he woke up one Saturday morning with he and a couple of his buddies to go paintballing. And as they drove down Highway 70, they had no thought that that would be the day that they would go and meet the Lord. But my brother did go and meet the Lord that day. Now, I'm proud to say he met the Lord in a prepared condition. He had obeyed the gospel and was serving Jesus. But not everybody can say that. Not everybody is going to be able to meet the cold, hard face of death knowing that they are ready for that. You may die before tomorrow comes. It is possible, though, that you will live to see another day. In fact, statistically, you probably will. But that then leads to another potential problem, and that is that, well, the Lord may return. The Lord may return signaling the end of time as we know it. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, the Bible says that the day of the Lord, it'll come as a thief in the night. How does a thief operate? Does a thief call you up, you know, on Monday and say, hey, I'm a thief and, uh, I'm gonna be at your house Saturday night at like, you know, 10.58, so just wanna let you guys know for when I come, y'all be ready for that. Is that how thief works? No. Thief comes unexpectedly, at the hour when you least expect it, and so it will be when Jesus returns. Time will end. This earth will be destroyed. Now, once again, that event is certain. That is fixed. Which makes tomorrow all the more uncertain. Is that a gamble that you're willing and ready to make? But it is possible that the Lord will be long-suffering. That His patience will continue for yet another day. You will get the opportunity to see tomorrow, but there is still at least one more problem with waiting until tomorrow to obey God. And that is this. And that is that your heart may be hardened. Do you remember in the book of Exodus the story of the ten plagues being rained down upon the land of Egypt? In Exodus chapter 8, there is the story there of the plague of frogs coming over the land of Egypt. It's always funny when I get ready to talk about the frogs. Tiffany is conveniently not present for that. She just something going on there. In verse 8 of Exodus chapter 8, the Bible says that Pharaoh calls for Moses and asks him, Moses, please go to the Lord, entreat the Lord on my behalf that these frogs be taken away. There were frogs everywhere, all over the ground, in people's houses, in their bathtubs, in their bed, in the cupboard, in their oven, in, the, you know, in their shoes, just all over the place. Frogs everywhere. Terrible that would be. And so Moses asked Pharaoh, you want me to take these frogs away, Pharaoh? Okay, verse 9. When? When do you want me to do that? When do you want this to happen? When do you want me to go to God and ask for the frogs to be taken away for good? Now, what's the logical answer to that question? If there's frogs everywhere, yes, the logical answer is now, right now, today. This. Why are you even asking this? Let's get them out of here pronto. Get those frogs gone. But in Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. What did Pharaoh say? Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Tomorrow. What Pharaoh wanted was just one more day to see if his stubbornness would be tolerated by God. And what happened as a result of that? In verse 15 of Exodus chapter 8, the Bible says that when Pharaoh saw that there was relief from the frogs, he hardened his heart and would not listen. That man's procrastination caused him to build an impenetrable wall around his heart to the point that it didn't matter what Moses said. It didn't matter what God did to Egypt. God's doing all these amazing signs, the kind of thing that would make us say, whoa, God, you are God and I'm going to worship you. It didn't matter what God was going to do. He was not going to listen and he was not going to let those people go. And what I'm saying to you is that that danger, that danger is still present even today. In Hebrews chapter 3, excuse me, Hebrews 3 and in verse 7, the Bible says there that today, today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. In verse 13, He goes on to say, and He's saying this to Christians, He says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Why? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this is not a race to just become a Christian right at the last second. I'm going to become a Christian like right before I die. I'm going to catch that last flight out to heaven and everything will be well with me and the Lord. No, this is a race for you to hear the Word of God, to repent of your sins and to submit to Jesus before your heart becomes unresponsive to the truth. You might not be willing to hear the truth tomorrow. You might not be willing to accept the truth tomorrow. But if you have been convicted of your sins today if you understand the need that you have in your life for a Savior today, if you understand and recognize that you need those sins cleansed from your soul today, then why will you not do something about that today? Why don't you do something about that right now? We do extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ. And no, it's not an invitation to come and eat a literal physical supper But it is an invitation to come to that spiritual supper, that spiritual feast and that banquet that Jesus has prepared and He is offering to you by His grace and by His love. And just like in that parable of the Great Supper where we began in Luke 14, right now you have the chance and you will do one of two things. Either you can accept that invitation or you can continue to make your excuses. And as that parable points out, people who make excuses don't get to come in. It is only those who accept the invitation willingly, voluntarily, heartfelt obedience unto God, only those will be privileged to eat bread in the kingdom of God, both now and for all of eternity. If you're not a Christian... We are imploring you. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I think it's the song, I Am Resolved. Our prayer and our desire is that you will be resolved right now to be a child of God, to put Christ on in baptism, and to start living for Him. Let us as your brothers, your new brothers and sisters, encourage you and help you to grow so that you can be everything that God wants you to be and you can be in heaven someday. Brother or sister, if you're not living for the Lord, you're not doing what you ought to, maybe there's some hypocrisy going on in your life, repent of that. Don't be making excuses. Repent of that and start serving the Lord in a better way from this point going forward. The invitation of Jesus the Christ, it is open to you. Will you accept it? If so, do that right now while we stand and while we sing.